listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all the latest mental health-related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, or how to make sense of media reports on the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, this is where you'll hear about it first without the hype and distortion of other media sources with the benefit of more than 20 years of practice in psychiatry and along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Welcome back, folks. Again, appreciate your listening in. This is the Wednesday, April the 9th edition of Psychiatry Today. And as always, I welcome your questions related to mental health issues. Perhaps you or someone close to you has been struggling with a mental health issue and uh, has been having trouble finding the right help. I'd be happy to be a resource for you and see if I can get you pointed in the right direction. Or perhaps you have a question or a comment about something that I've discussed on the show, either tonight's show or a previous week's show. Or perhaps there's a topic you'd like to hear me discuss. Regardless, you can send all your questions and comments and feedback about the show to me at the following email address, Dr. Scott at americaswebradio.com. Again, that's Dr. Scott, spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at americaswebradio.com, A-M-E-R-I-C-A-S-W-E-B-R-A-D-I-O.com. And I want to reassure everybody who is thinking about sending in a question, I'm very careful to make sure no identifying information whatsoever would be revealed to keep your question uh, confidential just uh, so that you're the only one who'll know who it is. And I also want to point out that's a new email address. Uh, And uh, be patient if you haven't heard your response to your message on the current week's show. It will most likely be on the following week's show. And as far as getting into the topics for tonight's program. Uh, It's very sad and frustrating that I have to, yet again, bring my attention to the mental health-related angle of a serious news story. Once again, there was a shooting that took place with implications related to mental health problems of the shooter. And once again... Quite sadly and tragically, this took place at a military installation that has already seen some of the worst mass murder, violence, and trauma and death in the country. Of course, I'm talking about the newest shooting at Fort Hood, the military installation in the place of the same name in Texas. And... The soldier suspected of shooting dead three people before killing himself at that army base, identified as Ivan Lopez, 
a man battling mental illness, and that's the main reason we're discussing it on tonight's show. Uh, he was purportedly diagnosed with mental illness and being further evaluated for mental illness when he went on this shooting spree that ended with him taking his own life. Now, originally when the story, story was reported, they didn't know what the motive was. Uh, he also wounded 16 people, by the way. And this the second mass shooting in five years at one of the largest military bases in the United States certainly raises serious questions about security at such installations. Uh, but they were saying right away that they had very strong evidence that he had a medical history indicating unstable psychiatric or psychological conditions. They also said that there may have been a verbal altercation with another soldier or soldiers. And that was the strong possibility of what immediately preceded the shooting. Now, Lopez, who was 34, had been treated for depression and anxiety. He's originally from Puerto Rico. He was being evaluated to see if he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. He was suspected of smuggling onto the base a recently purchased Smith & Wesson 45 caliber pistol that was used in the shootings. Now, United States Secretary of the Army John McHugh said that Lopez, who joined the service in 2008, had served two tours of duty abroad, including four months in Iraq in 2011. But apparently he had no direct involvement in combat and had not been wounded. And he was undergoing a variety of treatment and diagnoses for mental health conditions ranging from depression to anxiety to some sleep disturbance. And he was prescribed a number of medications to address those issues, including Ambien. That, according to McHugh, who addressed the United States Senate committee hearing. It's interesting to me that they're disclosing so much uh, about his history and they mentioned that he was on medication, but the only one they named specifically is Ambien. You have to wonder about that, given all the recent controversy about Ambien, what with prominent people, uh, such as uh, people in the Kennedy family, having had sleep-driving episodes under the influence of alcohol while on Ambien. Now, Lopez served in the Puerto Rico National Guard for several years, in an infantry unit and as a band member, both military combat training assignments. He also had a stint as part of an observation mission in the Sinai in Egypt. Now, he was under psychiatric care. However, McHugh told uh, the Senate committee that he had, he had no, sh no signs of violence or suicidal tendencies prior to this incident. Uh, so apparently there wasn't any advanced clues that he was prone to act out in this way. It was, it was also disclosed that he had self-reported a traumatic brain injury after returning from Iraq, but was never wounded in action. 
So we don't know whether he in fact did suffer a traumatic brain injury or not or how. It apparently wasn't in combat. Now, this rampage is the third shooting at a military base in the United States in about six months. And that, along with a series of shootings in schools and malls, has sparked a national debate over gun control regulations, including, and we'll get to this more later, including potential new rules governing the access to firearms, specifically by those who suffer from mental health problems. Now, the United States military's so far frustrated efforts to secure its bases from potential shooters who apparently increasingly appear to target these facilities. Mr. Lopez walked into one of the unit buildings, opened fire, then got into a vehicle and fired from there. He went to another building and opened fire again until he was engaged by Fort Hood law enforcement officers. And when confronted by a female military police officer, he shot himself with a semi-automatic weapon. Now, Fort Hood is a base from which soldiers prepare to deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan. It had overhauled its security to better deal with potential insider threats after a 2009 rampage by an army psychiatrist who shot dead 13 people and wounded 32 others. In September of 2013, a gunman opened fire at the Washington Navy Yard, killing 12 and wounding four before being killed by police. And last month, a civilian shot dead a sailor aboard a ship at a U.S. Navy base in Norfolk, Virginia. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel ordered steps to improve Pentagon security after reviews found the Navy Yard shooting could have been averted if the gunman's mental health had been properly handled. Now, it came out later, a few days after the shooting, that the gunman at Fort Hood argued heatedly with fellow soldiers before going on this shooting spree. Lopez purchased the weapon that he used in the shooting on March the 1st in Killeen, Texas at Guns Galore, ironically the same shop where former Army psychiatrist Major Nidal Hassan bought the weapon used in the 2009 rampage at the base where he shot dead 13 people and wounded 32 like we talked about before. Well, so what, what can be learned from this? Uh, obviously, because this is basically a replay of other incidents, obviously not enough has been learned to be able to effectively prevent them. But let's take a look at some of the mental health issues that this raises and uh, examine some of these issues and not likely going to come up with any startling conclusions, but... Uh, I think there are some very important mental health implications of what happened. First of all, let's take a look at this installation, Fort Hood. This is now uh, a second serious incident in several years, despite what you would already think was heavy security before the first incident. 
I think what this shows is that there is certainly um, a lack of leadership uh, in terms of imposing strict limits on access to bases and uh, checking credentials, uh, screening for unauthorized weapons. A more uh, egregious example of this was the shooting last month on that Navy ship. So security certainly has to be tightened. Now, the other issue is, is that of mental health treatment. It's not known yet whether the shooter in this incident was offered adequate treatment or not. He certainly was already under care and being evaluated from more. So we can't second-guess anyone on that issue. All right, we're going to take a commercial break right here. We'll continue this discussion when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that allergy season in Georgia is year-round? Beginning in July through November, ragweed is the predominant pollen. But February through May, tree pollen causes allergy symptoms. Grass pollen occurs from mid-May through the beginning of July. If you suffer from daily nasal congestion, sneezing, runny nose, headache, ear clogging, or popping, or a chronic cough, these symptoms may be due to allergy and not infection. You should also think of allergies if there is no fever, chills, or colored mucus. Treatment should include nasal salt water sprays over the counter or any histamines that do not cause drowsiness. If you have persistent headaches, a decrease in your sense of smell, or nosebleeds, you should see an ear, nose, and throat physician. Please join me on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio with you. We're talking about the mental health related issues that come up with the latest incident 
at a military installation where a soldier with a mental health history opened fire, killing three people and then himself. Now, some of the issues this brings up is access to weapons in general, and specifically for those with a history of mental health. Now, in, in terms of access to guns in general, apparently as a nation, we value that right very strongly, and we are loath to restrict access to guns. Uh, this has been shown for many, many years, and therefore, given that, we have to accept the fact that access to guns uh, is quite readily, uh, e easily available, and we have to accept that as a result, there are going to be some violent incidents and some people are going to lose their lives. Uh, you can't have it both ways. If you want free access to guns, this is something you're going to have to accept. Now, as far as mentally ill and restricting their access to guns, uh, this to me is a very sticky area. Uh, as you know, for, if you're a long-time listener of the show, you know that I'm strongly opposed to the mentally ill having to accept any degree of stigma in their life just because they suffer from mental illness or have a psychiatric diagnosis. Indeed, that's really one of the core uh, motivation that uh, drives me to do this show. But now, after, in the aftermath of this latest shooting at Fort Hood, you have certain people, including politicians, talking about the need to further restrict the mentally ill's access to guns. Well, how are you going to do this? Who's going to decide? Already, there are laws on the books in many states that if you've been adjudicated to be seriously mentally ill and sent to a psychiatric hospital or mandated to psychiatric treatment against your will, then that means you fail a background check for being able to purchase a firearm. Uh, so you already have in many places a situation that creates uh, a separate class of citizenry that does not have the same Second Amendment rights as other citizens. Uh, of course, this system failed in West Virginia, uh, resulting in a tragic shooting at the university there. But in any case, is that right? Should there be a second type of citizenry that has different Second Amendment rights than anyone else? And furthermore, if we now are going to impose further restrictions on the gun rights of the mentally ill, who is it that are going to make this determination? I can tell you right off the bat, I do not feel psychiatrists should be made to make this determination. If someone is going to tell me that, by law, it is now up to me to make a determination as to who should be able to purchase a firearm legally or who should not, uh, that is not something that myself nor any of my colleagues, I think, would want to do. Uh, that would mean that we would be making decisions that could potentially result in disaster if the, the judgment turned out to be wrong, that a person wasn't safe to uh, purchase and own firearms uh, 
just play the scenario out. A doctor says, yes, this person is okay to psychiatrically to own firearms, and then they wind up using them to hurt themselves or uh, others. Then, of course, uh, the liability will be on the psychiatrist who made that decision. So I see that as a non-starter. So then are you going to leave such adjudication to judges? Are they going to be uh, sort of deciding this uh, legal issue, even for people who have not been mandated to a hospital or outpatient treatment already in a court of law? So I think the, uh, the idea that you can somehow address these incidents of mass gun violence by people with a history of mental illness by imposing new laws or restrictions on the access to guns of the mentally ill, uh, I do not see that as solving the problem. Uh, again, I see that only as a way of creating a separate class of citizens that do not have the same Second Amendment rights as anyone else, and I just think that's downright unconstitutional. So then what is the solution? Well, I think if you make the argument that we should not restrict access to guns, that we as a nation seem to value our Second Amendment rights too highly to do that. And furthermore, I feel by extension we should not create a separate class of citizens that just because they have a mental illness have to uh, surrender their Second Amendment rights. I think the solution is simply better security. And, you know, that really boils down to having a different way of life. Uh, in other places besides the United States, there are metal detectors and friskings other than just on airport security lines uh, to keep people safe. Uh, we're now having those increasingly when we enter uh, ballparks for football or now baseball games. But uh, would we tolerate getting used to doing these kinds of things as we enter other venues, shopping malls, movie theaters, restaurants? I think unless we're willing to impose greater and more restrictive security measures, then I don't see the situation changing. I think that there will continue to be incidents like this uh, as long as we value our Second Amendment rights so strongly. Well, I'd be interested to hear any of your opinions on this issue and certainly I'm willing to discuss any and all opinions based on what I've said, whether you agree with me wholeheartedly or whether you vehemently disagree with me. Uh, so again, welcome your comments and your feedback. The email address for me is Dr. Scott, that's D-R-S-C-O-T, at americaswebradio.com, A-M-E-R-I-C-A-S-W-E-B-R-A-D-I-O.com. Well, let's move on to other mental health-related topics. And another big mental health-related story in the past couple of weeks was the study that came out on the incidence of autism in the United States. It seems like with each successive study that comes out, 
the the uh, prevalence of autism is going up remarkably high. The latest data from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta, says that as many as one out of 68 children in the United States have autism, a 30% increase in just two years. Now, I should emphasize that just the word autism implies a fairly broad spectrum of different types of disabilities, and that's especially since uh, last May when the American Psychiatric Association came out with its revised classification of psychiatric illnesses and uh, just putting all types of autism disorders under one big umbrella, Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD. Now, the experts say the increase in the incidence of autism probably simply reflects the fact that parents and doctors are getting better at recognizing and diagnosing the disorder. In other words, it's not likely that all of a sudden there's actually a drastic increase in the number of kids with autism. The reason for the significant increase is that it's being better recognized and diagnosed and uh, also a lot more subtle cases are being diagnosed and recognized. Now, just to illustrate this with some basic examples, if there is a kid who just has no relatedness and no social activity at all and sits in the corner rocking and sometimes tragically continuing to bang their head against the wall, then obviously that is a child with a very, very serious autistic type disorder. Whereas if there is a kid who seems to function typically in most areas, but is very socially naive and awkward and has some odd idiosyncratic behaviors, then perhaps in the past when there was less awareness of autism, that that kid might not have been diagnosed properly. Uh, whereas now that there is much more awareness of autism disorders and the full spectrum of behaviors that fits under that name, the uh, proper diagnosis has uh, become much more prevalent. And indeed, for this article about the CDC data, it says that experts were largely unfazed by the latest numbers, which they say do not necessarily suggest increasing prevalence. And as people increasingly become more aware the prevalence has always increased in any type of psychiatric disorder. Now, uh, the latest data looked at information from 2010 and estimates that 14.7 per 1,008-year-olds in 11 United States communities have autism. And that compares with a prior estimate of 1 in 88 children, or 11.3% of 1,000 eight-year-olds in 2008, and one in 150 children in 2000. And again, it's important to emphasize, when talking about autism, you have to keep in mind, it encompasses a spectrum of disorders, like I was describing to you before, 
ranging from a profound inability to communicate and mental retardation to relatively mild symptoms in people with very high intellectual ability. All right, now we're going to take another commercial break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion of the information showing yet another increase in uh, the number of kids who are diagnosed with autism, and we'll have more mental health-related information after that. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott on America's Web Radio. Be right back after this break. Come on, follow Sniffles to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Followsniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Followsniffles.com. This is Michael Gano with the Middle East Research Center Limited, bringing you Insight to Israel, the truth about the greatness of the Jewish state and its struggle for sovereignty and security, every Sunday at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, you're a psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, talking about the latest information on the incidence of autism in the United States. Now, almost half of children identified as having autism in this latest report from the CDC have average or above average IQ levels compared with just a third of children a decade ago. So it actually could be that doctors are just getting better at identifying these children, especially the ones with higher or uh, average or higher than average intelligence. And if there's a growing number of children with autism, that higher intellectual ability, uh, and then combine that with better recognition, then that's why the prevalence numbers go up. Because they're not just identifying the kids with profoundly decreased intellectual abilities who have autism, uh, but the kids uh, with much higher intelligence that belong in the autism spectrum. Now, The latest data shows that autism is still almost five times more common among boys than girls. It affects one out of 42 boys versus one out of 189 girls. And white children are more likely to be identified as having autism spectrum disorder than are black or Hispanic children. Now, 
the article about that the CDC report does not explain the difference in gender, and uh, but as far as the difference in ethnicity, even though that is also not explained in the article, it seems fair to speculate that uh, among black and Hispanic ethnic groups, perhaps there are more families who are not well off in terms of being able to afford care that would include proper diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder in their children compared to whites. The reports about high rates of autism are increasing awareness, and the latest numbers from the CDC will likely mean that with this increased awareness, even more people may look for signs of autism in their children or have them assessed and perhaps be diagnosed. Now, another big mental health-related story, and this is something that I really want to debunk and um, give you the true story about right away, and that is the whole idea of using ketamine to treat severe depression. Okay, ketamine, it is an anesthetic drug. It's also a rave party drug called Special K. And yes, there is even more evidence now that this drug can help severe depression. But does that mean that it's ready to be used in common clinical practice to treat severe depression? I don't think so. And we'll go over why. And ketamine has been commonly known as a party drug, again called Special K, but Apparently, since it could help some people who have severe depression, uh, and there's the latest new evidence of this is a British study, which was published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology. Now, ketamine has to be administered intravenously, and so they gave these ketamine intravenous infusions to people with treatment-resistant depression, and there were 28 patients in the study that either had just garden variety, unipolar major depression, or bipolar treatment-resistant depression. And they were treated over a period of three weeks. They received either three or six ketamine infusions for over 40 minutes in the recovery room of a routine ECT clinic. Now, ECT stands for electronic convulsive, electronic convulsive therapy, um, and... This is commonly and derisively known as shock treatment, and um, it's a clinic where they can easily monitor psychiatric patients and administer intravenous drugs. The patients weren't having ECT at the clinic. They also did memory tests a few days after the final infusion, and patients relayed their mood symptoms on a daily basis via text message or email. In some cases, the antidepressant response took a second ketamine infusion to become noticeable. But three days after the last infusion, the depression scores had halved in 29% of the patients. In patients who responded to the treatment, the benefit lasted between 25 days and 8 months. The median was 2.3 months. 
Researchers saw remarkable changes in people who suffered from severe depression for many years and who had been unaffected by other treatments. One of the interesting findings was that patients reported that the flow of their thinking felt suddenly freer. Although many patients relapsed within a day or two, 29% had benefits that lasted at least three weeks and 15% took more than two months to relapse. When administered up to a half a dozen times, Ketamine did not cause cognitive or bladder side effects. However, some people did have side effects, such as anxiety during the infusion or were sick. In a separate study on serial infusions of low-dose ketamine for major depression, researchers found that ketamine infusions at a lower rate than previously reported demonstrated similar effectiveness and excellent tolerability and may be more practically available for routine clinical care. All right, well, first of all, I hardly think you can call a treatment that must be given by intravenous infusion something that is practically available for routine clinical care. Let's be clear, this is something that is only reserved for the patient's who have the most severe illness, that uh, have tried and failed multiple different other treatments, including several prescription medic oral medications, and in many cases have also failed other treatment modalities such as ECT. And the rates of response, while notable and remarkable given what the treatment is, certainly uh, are not startlingly high. Again, 20, only 29% had benefits that lasted three weeks. 15% uh, is the only amount of patients who didn't relapse within two months. But still, after all, we are talking about the most treatment-resistant population. So in that sense, it explains why the responses are low. What the article doesn't talk about and what I think gets lost in the discussion of potentially using intravenous ketamine as a treatment for depression is that the potential side effects are inducing psychotic symptoms such as hallucinations especially. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is part of what those who use it as a party drug are expecting to have some sort of hallucinogenic activity. And it even can bring on psychotic type thinking and behavior in vulnerable individuals. So rather than a lot of hype and hoopla about ketamine as a treatment for severe treatment-resistant depression, Instead, what I think should be going on is that, okay, well, we're on to something here. This obviously works well in some patients, and what is most remarkable about it is that it works very quickly compared to antidepressants, which take at least two weeks to start doing anything positive at all. But instead of heavily promoting a treatment that requires an intravenous line, and also that has a risk of very serious psychotic-like side effects, 
Instead, the focus should be, all right, well, what is the mechanism in the brain by which ketamine helps to relieve depression so quickly? And by learning and studying that, find other medications which potentially could work in a similar manner, yet do not have the same potentially severe psychiatric side effects, never mind the physical side effects. And so that's what I would like to see happen. Uh, unfortunately, that is not getting discussed. Instead, there's just increasing enthusiasm about ketamine as a treatment and a lack of attention to the obvious very severe risks of side effects. <clears throat> well, as there are more developments in that situation, I'll be sure to bring them to you. Uh, but I do want to caution strongly against those of you out there who yourself may be sufferers of treatment-resistant depression or those of you who have uh, loved ones who are in that situation. Uh, it is not a good idea to see ketamine as a panacea. It's a very fascinating and important discovery, uh, but by itself, I do not see it as a solution. Now, Next up on tonight's show, we know that stress, especially chronic severe stress, has a lot of negative effects on the body, and mental health and physical health are inextricably tied together. And again, that's the idea of my show in terms of reminding people of that link and, and not to just ignore mental illness and stigmatize it. And here we have... Another example of the effects on the body of stress. Stress may diminish a woman's fertility. And this, according to new research, the authors of the study wanted to investigate the relationship between stress and infertility. So they looked at levels of an enzyme linked with stress in the saliva of women who were trying to get pregnant. They also tracked the women's ability to conceive over a 12-month period, women with higher levels of the stress biomarker had a two-fold increased risk of infertility. Now, what is this enzyme they measured? It's called salivary alpha amylase, which is secreted into the mouth. It helps the body to start digesting carbohydrates, and it's also linked to the fight-or-flight part of the stress system. So measuring levels of it is a good way to measure levels of stress. Well, we're going to take another commercial break right here, and when we come back, we'll get into more details of the study and have other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott on America's Web Radio. Be right back. Come on, follow Snipples to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? 
All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America webradio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio thank you for listening welcome back to psychiatry today dr scott bay your psychiatrist on america's web radio with you and the subject that we got started on before the break was how stress can diminish a woman's fertility researchers collected data from about 500 couples who were recruited from targeted counties in texas and michigan They tried to find couples who were just starting to try to get pregnant. Of the approximately 400 couples who completed the study, 87% of the women became pregnant. After adjusting for age, race, income, and the use of alcohol, caffeine, and cigarettes, researchers found that the women with the highest alpha amylase levels had a 29% lower probability of pregnancy compared to the women who had the lowest levels of the enzyme. Now, remember, we talked about this before the break. The alpha amylase is an enzyme found in the saliva. It is important in starch digestion, but it's also increased by stress. Now, the study results were published in the March 24 issue of the journal Human Reproduction. The results do not suggest that stress alone is the reason a woman can't get pregnant. The message is not that everyone should go enroll in yoga tomorrow, but the message is that if you've tried to get pregnant for five or six months and you aren't getting anywhere, maybe you should look at your lifestyle and think about whether or not stress might be a problem for you. And if it is, you might want to consider a stress management program. Now, the authors of the study claim this is the first United States study to show a possible association between a stress indicator and how long it takes a woman to become pregnant. Exactly how stress affects fertility is not well understood. Some women stop ovulating during stressful times. Researchers have also collected data on men but have not yet analyzed it so it's not yet clear how much a man's stress might influence a couple's fertility. Women struggling with infertility who have stressful lifestyles should not blame themselves. Stress is not the major indicator of whether or not you're going to get pregnant. Age is the number one factor linked to the inability to conceive. Success rates are better in women under the age of 35. That's a simple statistical reality. Cigarette smoking is absolutely associated with a decrease in the ability to become pregnant. Obesity is beginning to be looked at as well. So the authors want to get the message out there. They're not saying stress is a major reason for infertility, 
but certainly the message is that it's among those risk factors for infertility that should be considered, especially if the others have been ruled out. Again, another illustration of how the mind and how it functions definitely affects the body. Next up on tonight's show, a stem cell study that paves the way for custom bipolar treatments. Bipolar disorder is a complex mental health condition that affects an estimated 200 million people worldwide. While our understanding of depression and mania, the two bipolar extremes, stretches all the way back to ancient Greece, just how these two stages of bipolar disorder develop and intersect has largely remained a mystery. But new research published last week in the journal Translational Psychiatry shows how the first ever bipolar stem cell lines can give us clues as to how brain cells develop in people with bipolar disorder. Scientists from the University of Michigan Medical School were able to grow brain cells from the skin cells of bipolar patients and compare them to normal healthy brain cells as well as to test how lithium, the most common bipolar disorder medication, affected those cells. Researchers took cells from skin samples given by bipolar patients, and then they created, by uh, chemical inducements, pluripotent stem cells, which are similar to umbilical cord stem cells and can grow into any other type of cell in the body. From there, researchers were able to coax the cells to develop into brain cells. Under a microscope, the research team noticed differences between brain cells from bipolar patients and those from people without a mental disorder. Researchers found that the bipolar brain cells expressed more genes for certain membrane receptors and ion channels, specifically those that transfer calcium between cells. Now, this is not the first time that calcium ion channels in brain cells have been implicated in bipolar disorder. In fact, going back many years ago, calcium channel blockers that are used to treat hypertension were also tested in bipolar disorder. Now, because calcium is crucial to brain cell growth and development, the researchers say their findings support the theory that small genetic differences during early brain development are crucial to the onset of bipolar disorder and other mental illnesses. They also discovered small differences in the cell's microRNA, which helps to determine which genes are expressed and how in bipolar patients. This supports the idea that several genetic vulnerabilities are responsible for the development of bipolar disorder. Now, the microRNA, that's a measure of gene expression. Uh, DNA translates into RNA, which then uh, produces the product of genes. Now, the University of Michigan team also exposed these bipolar brain cells to lithium and observed how the lithium altered the cell's calcium signaling. 
Researchers say this will allow them to study therapies on a patient's individual brain cells in a laboratory setting. And they hope that with this line of research, the current trial and error approach to treating bipolar disorder could be tailored to specific patients and assessed at a microscopic level. It could mean fewer unwanted side effects from medications and quicker identification of effective treatments. Now, this is extremely exciting, but the thought of taking a patient suffering in the throes of either depression or mania in bipolar disorder and say, oh, well, you know what we'll do to initiate treatment? We'll take some of your skin cells and then we'll create a culture of some brain cells and then we'll expose your cultured brain cells to some drugs and see how they react and we'll come up with a treatment that'll work just for you. It'll be customized treatment. Not sure how long that's going to take. The good news is that we can still administer medications that we know to work in most people while this process is going on, so it's not as if the person's treatment has to be completely on hold. But while it is exciting, what I hope is that there will be some way to kind of truncate the process and accelerate it along the way, maybe skip or hasten some of these steps and get right to the point of figuring out how best to determine uh, a, a given treatment for a given individual with bipolar disorder, perhaps coming up with a specific genetic test, which of course can be done with just a simple blood test or even really uh, a buccal swab, just looking at someone's cells and looking at their DNA. All right, but again, an exciting development indeed, not to understate that, that uh, scientists may have found another way to customize and individualize treatment for a major uh, psychiatric syndrome which causes a great deal of severe disability. Here's a work-related update, a, a stress in the workplace update for psychiatry today for tonight's show, and it's about how mentally demanding jobs are linked to slower cognitive decline. People with mentally challenging jobs, like air traffic controllers, doctors, and financial analysts, tend to stay mentally sharper while on the job and following retirement. Working in a job that involves a lot of thinking, analyzing, problem-solving, creativity, and other complex mental processing is related to higher levels of cognitive functioning, not only before retirement, while we're all working, but also after retirement. And this is not the first study to suggest such a link between mental demands on the job and workers' mental function. Other studies have looked at demanding occupations and found that the risk of dementia is less, but the jury is still out there. People of jobs requiring a lot of thought and independent decision-making tend to have better cognitive function. And then workers with less demanding jobs lose their thinking and memory skills faster than those with more mental demands. Now, there's been less research on the association between work demands and mental functioning prior to versus after retirement. Uh, the study is based on looking at over 4,000 adults who worked for a specific job for 10 years and then retired. And they were 51 to 61 years of age when they entered the study, 
which was an 18-year period from 92 to 2010. And it looked like adults who worked in jobs with higher mental demands had better memory before retirement and a slower decline in memory after retirement than those in less mentally demanding occupations. Now, these mentally challenging occupations showed a higher mental status at retirement, a slower decline afterwards, such that an occupation requiring a variety of mental processes or redesigning less uh, cognitively complex jobs to be more cognitively complex might be more beneficial to employees. People's education, income, and health were taken into account. The study doesn't prove that jobs themselves were protective against cognitive decline. However, there's a lot of things that increase a person's risk for dementia, and you have to take a lot of things into consideration looking at such a large study population. But the cognitively stimulating activity does improve mental function regardless of occupation. So it's more evidence that mental activity and stimulation is good for your brain, whether that comes from your job or other activities. And this was published March 17th online in the Journal of Occupational Health Psychology. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show, folks. I hope that you enjoyed listening to the information that I enjoyed very much bringing to you. And I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening.